You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're going to be considering together chapter 19. Verses 8 through 12. The paragraph divisions in our translation are not inspired. So you'll notice we're going over a paragraph division and that's okay. Acts chapter 19, you'll find this on page 928 of the Pew Bible. And we're looking together at Acts 19 verses 8 through 12. Hear the word of God. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Well, last time we were together, we considered Paul, who arrived in Ephesus, where he met 12 of John's disciples, as you remember. They were unacquainted with the historical details of Christ's ministry. Apparently, they did not know about the cross or the resurrection or even the Holy Spirit. So Paul discipled them, and when they were baptized, they too were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was a continuation of the great watershed event at Pentecost. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church. So having formed a fellowship with these men, Paul went to the synagogue. And this was Paul's customary way, you remember, of evangelism in any city that he visited. He would go first to the local synagogue and he'd reason from the scriptures. Here in Ephesus, he did this for three months, speaking boldly of Jesus Christ. And with all of his might, he reasoned and he tried to persuade those who were listening. He was speaking to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God, as the text tells us. This was the Jewish birthright, after all. The Israelite nation had been chosen by God. To them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the worship, the promises. So to the Jews first, the gospel of Christ was proclaimed by his disciples and apostles. For three months, Paul labored among the Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue. And as it says, he reasoned from Scripture and tried to persuade 
the hearers. And that's not an easy thing to do, given the natural blindness and indisposedness that is in sinners. Eventually, the opposition to the gospel reached a boiling point. It says some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So they made their complaints known. They were unhappy. They were vociferously opposed. And strength and the intensity rose to such a pitch that Paul eventually had to withdraw. He could no longer preach in the synagogue, so he went elsewhere. And how sad that was. Some, not all, some hardened listeners deprived the whole group of the word of God. They drove away the only means of provided for the salvation of sinners. Paul elsewhere said at one point that the Jewish listeners judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And the apostle tells us in Hebrews 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. There's the importance of church discipline right there. So these people failed to obtain the grace of God because they rejected the means that God has provided. Their hearts were hard, their necks were stiff, their souls were unbelieving, and it's not a surprise that a root of bitterness had sprung up, poisoning themselves and other people. And their apostasy troubled many souls and drove away the gospel. So Paul, being resourceful, was able to secure a place for the ministry in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And we know nothing about this man. He either was the owner of the hall or perhaps a famous lecturer in it. Either way, he had some authority and influence, and he let Paul use the hall. You can preach here, Paul. And history tells us that Paul was able to utilize that building each weekday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, you might think that's a strange detail. But we discovered that that was during the heat of the day when most people stopped working. And since most public activities ceased, the hall itself would have been available. So the apostle was able to preach and teach in the hall while it was being unused. And at the same time, his listeners would have been free during the midday siesta, as it were. So after spending the early hours of the day making tents, Paul preached in the heat of the day, making disciples. Each day from 11 to 4, he, found, he could be found in the hall of Tyrannus, reasoning from Scripture, and what a blessing that was. All throughout the week, he and they had an opportunity to focus on the Scriptures. Not only in the synagogue on the Sabbath was he able to do that, but now he preached daily in the hall. And you know something in Geneva, maybe you know this, John Calvin instituted several practices that seemed to echo this kind of thing. In the summer, for example, in Geneva, on Sunday, they had a service at 5 a.m. Right there, our flags go up, 5 a.m. They had a service at 9 a.m. They had catechism at noon. And they had an afternoon service when the whole church could come together again. Before Calvin died in Geneva, people were exposed to daily sermons every day of the week. 
And this exerted a powerful influence in shaping the Genevan culture. That constant ministry of the word impacted the whole surrounding population of Geneva. And now we see an illustration of the truth of Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, says the Lord, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Wherever God's word is preached, it brings to bear a mighty influence. Preached faithfully, I should probably qualify. So Paul preached in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for no less than two years, and it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So apparently the whole surrounding region was thoroughly evangelized. And what a blessing. What a blessing. All the people in that province were able to hear the gospel. And in describing this period of his own ministry, Paul had this to say when he wrote to the Corinthians. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. And I think perhaps it's a little bit difficult for us to appreciate because the gospel is so widely available in our culture. Most people don't understand until it's too late and the means of grace are withdrawn. But in Ephesus, God was shining the light and many were coming to Christ. Those who had been sitting in darkness were now seeing a great light. And for centuries after this, Ephesus became one of the leading centers of Christianity. We note how the Lord confirmed Paul's ministry by great signs and wonders. You had to have noticed that. He blessed the apostles' efforts and there were great harvest of souls, so potent was his ministry that even articles of clothing were blessed for healing. Now, some modern TV preachers take that totally out of context and do similar things. Don't believe it. But Paul was an apostle, and it happened. And I think one lesson to be drawn from all of this is the vital importance of the gospel ministry. Because you see, ordinarily... There is no union with Christ, no communion with Jesus apart from the ministry of the word. Believe on the gospel. The gospel must be presented and the offer of salvation tendered for someone to be saved. Again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There you go. That's the offer. Those are the terms. God presents them. Then if Jesus Christ is received into the heart by faith, the believer is saved from the wrath to come. <laughs> That's incredible. And Paul highlights the vital importance of this in his letter to the Romans. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how were they to hear without someone preaching? You see, the offer of salvation must be made and the terms of salvation must be presented. I suppose God himself could speak. He could make the offer known directly if he wanted to. But if he did, 
His majestic voice would so overwhelm us that I don't think there'd be any takers whatsoever. We read earlier, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. They were too frightened to hear God directly. They needed a mediator because like us, they were jars of clay, easily shattered. And so God graciously accommodates himself to our weaknesses. He treats us with tenderness and he'll send ambassadors to make the offer of salvation. And these ambassadors are humans like us. They're flesh and blood. He sends fallen, redeemed creatures subject to the same weaknesses, the same afflictions, and thus they can sympathize with us because they too strive and struggle against sin and all the other challenges this world has to offer. So Paul was sent to Ephesus by God to offer salvation through Jesus Christ, and I think it illustrates the vital importance attached to the ministry of the gospel. But then there's another lesson that the focus of this gospel ministry is summed up by the kingdom of God. That's what it said. For three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And this is the same way that Matthew sums up Jesus' own Galilean ministry. In chapter 4 of Matthew, it says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. As in our Lord's ministry, so in Paul's ministry, the kingdom was central. And when we think of a kingdom, what first comes to mind? A king. It's no different with the kingdom of God. Christ is the everlasting king. We sung about that. When Jesus came, the kingdom arrived, and it came in the person of the incarnate Son of God. He's sovereign, and he's gracious, and he rules in our hearts now, and we're going to reign with him forever. He exercises his power and dominion with a father's love and a shepherd's care. That's his kingdom. It's a glorious spiritual kingdom in which all sincere believers are part. And the nature of Christ's kingdom is set forth by Paul in his letter to the Romans. Elder Gilliland read this earlier. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. I like what Matthew Henry has to say about these three aspects. Righteousness is our great concern with respect to a just and holy God. You and I can appear before him as justified only by the merit of Jesus Christ. That's righteousness. That's his kingdom. Peace is our great concern with respect to our brethren with whom we share this kingdom. We're to live in peace, extending charity to all and pursuing goodwill. That's peace. And then joy in the Holy Spirit is our deep concern with respect to ourselves. It is the joy he produces in our hearts by giving us new life in Christ. Righteousness, peace, 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of God's kingdom, and it ought to be the focus in the gospel ministry. Because you see, the very fact that there is a ministry implies the fall and human depravity, doesn't it? If we are to escape the wrath to come, we need to be delivered. That's implicit in the ministry. If there were no guilt or condemnation, why send out preachers? Why dispatch the ambassadors? If there was no war with God, why would he send ambassadors of peace? That's what they are by nature. If there was no misery from sin, why send the glad tidings of the gospel and the Holy Spirit? The very office of the ministry is an argument for the fall of man and the depravity of every human creature. The ministry was instituted by God as an instrument of redemption. And insofar as the kingdom of Christ is not the focus of the ministry, that ministry will fail. I don't care how many people show up, the ministry fails. The kingdom needs to be sought first and promoted in particular. And if it is not, it will not produce true lasting fruit in the souls of God's people. It's only when a ministry is governed by the word of God and animated by the spirit of God and performed by the men of God will it do what God designed it to do. But that leads to another lesson. The blessing of such a ministry becomes evident in the fruit that it bears. Paul stayed two years in Ephesus, laboring constantly in the heat of the day, and the fruit was born. The kingdom of God was advancing. The whole region heard the word of God. And throughout every century since Paul, the same thing has been happening. Countless lives, and we're all going to be before the throne of God. Countless lives have been transformed through the ministry of Christ's kingdom. And the gift of the ministry and its fruitfulness is given by the risen and exalted king. Paul quotes Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. True gospel ministry, emphasis on true, is an expression of his care and concern for his bride. It was something that he promised long ago as a provision for his spouse. Listen to what he said through the prophet. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You know, in many places around the world, the proof of his faithfulness is in the gospel ministry. And we should never take for granted his church his ministry, or his people, ever. In many places in this world, there is no church or ministry. There's persecution. The religious liberty organization called Open Doors tells us recently that the persecution of Christians is the highest it has been in the past 30 years. And in those difficult places, if there are Christians, I guarantee they value the church and its ministry. In this country, there are places where the absence is a source of pain and anguish. We have churches without leaders. 
We have towns without churches, and we have churches or ministries without Christ. So let's value the church and its ministry. Let's be thankful for it, and let's make the best use of it. Let's not disregard or treat with contempt the gifts received from Jesus. But then there's another lesson, a more serious and solemn one. Terrible is the judgment of having a church and ministry withdrawn. For three months, the synagogue in Ephesus enjoyed the light of the gospel. Each Sabbath day, Paul preached Christ and gospel light shone brightly. But when some hardened and disobedient spoke evil of the way, it withdrew. What an illustration. In this, it illustrates of what happens when we despise the gifts of Christ. Those in the synagogue grew so intolerant that they started cursing the ministry. That's what the word speaking evil means, literally. It's a harsh word. It means to revile or to insult or to curse. And Jesus uses that very same word when he refers to one who reviles father or mother. Matthew 15. So those in the synagogue reviled the gospel. They cursed Christ. They insulted Paul. And it was blasphemous, and that was how they mistreated the gift of Jesus. And as a result, the judgment of God fell. Not fire from heaven, but something worse. The Lord removed from their midst the gospel and its free offer, so that no longer had they access to the means of hearing about salvation. If you will not respect my ambassador, it's as if he said, If you will not be thankful for my gifts, then I'm going to take them away. And what a tremendous judgment that was. What a sad and wasted opportunity, because that's what happens when a thankless people do not appreciate the gifts of Christ. Do you remember what he said to the churches in Revelation 2? He says, and I quote, Remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, the Lord Jesus would take away their church and its ministry. And you know something? That was eventually carried out. Today, there is no church in Ephesus. In fact, it's believed that there's nothing in Ephesus. It lies in complete ruins. The Lord will not stand idly by while the gospel ministry is slighted. He will remove his gospel, his church, his ministers, his ordinances. I spent many years in New England where it was spiritually arid and barren. Now, that's a general statement, I know. There are many good works going on in New England. Believe me, there are. But three to four hundred years ago, it experienced great revivals and awakenings. Great preachers, noble Christians seem to fill the entire landscape of New England. And today, by comparison, there is very little to show for that. And my question is, did they despise the ministry? If so, I think that explains the state of things in New England. Jesus Christ had had enough. He called home his ambassadors. He closed down all the kingdom outposts. 
and God removed the means of grace and left those people to themselves. And as a result, the majority of them no longer have the light they once had and they sit in darkness. And you know something? We see this happening in Germany, Geneva, England, Scotland, Holland, I'm sorry, sad to say. These places once renowned for the faith, by and large, are in darkness. Paganism, the occult, false religions, immorality are widespread. And the true gospel ministry is sparse and sadly it's been withdrawn. And Paul says, how will they believe in him whom they never heard and how shall they hear without a preacher? So let's appreciate and make the best use of the church and its gospel ministry. A careless, negligent indifference is as offensive to Christ as rank opposition. Let's rejoice in the ordinances provided by Christ and give thanks. Secondly, let's realize as long as the ministry is faithful, we can be nourished. God distributes his gifts according to a sovereign good pleasure. Some have more gifts. Some have less gifts. Some have greater gifts. Some have lesser gifts. Not everybody can preach like Spurgeon or teach like Charles Hodge. I wish we could, but we can't. But whatever the gifts, if the ministry is faithful, our souls are nourished. The Spirit will accompany his inspired word with his gracious power with flawed instruments. He can use bent and rusty instruments to draw very straight lines. And therefore, let's pray that God will use the gospel ministry for good. Bear with me. I want to tell you one story. Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, he was an eminent minister of Christ, I think, in the 19th century. Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman. He was in his first pastorate in Philadelphia. Young man, first time pastor. One day he was visited by a layman who frankly said to him, Pastor, you're not a strong preacher. In the usual order of things, you will end up failing here. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Brand new. But a little group of laymen has agreed to gather every Sunday morning and pray for you. Reflecting on this, Dr. Chapman later later said, I saw that group grow to 1,000 men gathered weekly to pray for this preacher himself. And history shows that he was blessed by God with tremendous success. The truth is almost any sincere pastor would succeed if a group of prayer warriors would back him like that. I don't care what the gifts are. So let's realize that as long as it's faithful, we can be nourished. And finally, let's guard against grumbling and complaining about a church and its ministry. If God places you and I in a church, and sends us an ambassador, let's be content. Don't let his quirks or his idiosyncrasies or his style sour our attitude and spoil the blessing. Ask yourself, if today it was Jesus speaking from this pulpit, Jesus himself incarnate, how would you respond? You'd be locked in. Locked in. Every word. Well, you know what he says? The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, 
rejects him who sent me. He's talking about ministers. So long as a church and its ministers are faithful, they're worthy of our respect. When Hanun abused David's ambassadors, the king treated that as done to him. Remember David? It's no different with Jesus. He treats abuse of his ambassadors as if it's done to him. We shouldn't treat them with idolatrous, superstitious reverence. That's an extreme. Don't do that. Don't put the preacher on a pedestal. At the same time, we shouldn't regard them with ignorant and critical contempt. Don't bring them down to the ground. Avoid the extremes and let's have a balanced, appreciative approach. And so with the prophet, we can say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the great head and king of the church, and for the church and its ministry, how you have sent ambassadors of peace to bring the news of salvation to us and reconciliation with you. We pray that you'll help us to make the best use of the ministry you've appointed. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.